Welcome to the Soho Playhouse podcast. I'm Darren Lee Cole. This is a show about off-Broadway theater and how it serves the cultural landscapes of New York City, the United States, and the world. We'll chat with the incredible creators and influencers of this unique art form. So now, come with me backstage. Sometimes you have to travel in a different direction to get to your real destination. That's sort of the story of my life. Like going all the way to Auckland, New Zealand to talk to a couple of giants of the London theater scene. Charlotte Bennett is currently artistic director at Payne's Plough Theater. At the time of this recording, she was associate director of Soho Theater in London. And Richard Jordan heads, conveniently enough, Richard Jordan Productions, also of London. We were all attending a conference of artists, presenters, and producers from around the world. Please enjoy this most insightful chat. So I thought tonight it would be really interesting to spend a little time with these two producers and presenters and hear a bit about why presenters and producers come to these conferences. What are we looking for? What kind of shows do we hope to find? What kind of connections do we hope to make? Uh, so I'll start with Richard. Richard, you have, uh, let's just do a little bit of quick bio as far as what brings you to a conference like this. We've known each other for quite a few years, uh, so I know, but clue my listeners in onto what Richard Jordan Productions are and where do you produce, what, what is your programming? Uh, well, we have a production company that's based in London. Uh, we uh, formed in 1998. Uh, it's a small team who, who work with me. Uh, but we produce in uh, 28 different countries with a range of writers, predominantly new writers. I mean, my background before I started as a producer was I began my career in stage management, then moved into working in various new writing positions. I was for seven years associate artist at the Bush Theatre and then worked in the West End both for Michael Codron and Jimmy Needlander uh, for his organisation and then as creative director of the Theatre Royal Haymarket in London. London. Um, so I've been coming to international conferences for, for quite a number of years, partly because in many ways it's a great way of discovering writers from those countries. You learn an awful lot about the countries where you're going to, and if you're interested in producing you know, international new writing, it gives you a great context of where you're coming from. And it, I mean, my career has always been, uh, like yours, down about finding cultural collect connections. I think that's what anyone in theatre is, is, is there and trying to find those cultural collisions. Yeah, uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, and by the way, just a little connection tissue. Uh, Michael Cauldron, who uh, Richard mentioned, is the person that uh, actually I produced Killer Joe with in London. And so we have that in common, which originated in London at the Bush Theatre as well. Uh, we'll say a quick hello to Charlotte. Now, interestingly, I, I'm sure I'll let Charlotte speak to this, but having Soho Playhouse in New York and having Soho Theatre in London, people are always asking, are we connected? Are we the same? But uh, say a quick hello, Charlotte, and what brings you to be in your position at Soho Theatre on Dean Street in London? <laughs> Great. So, um, yes, so I'm the Associate Director at Soho Theatre, and I've been there about two and a half years. Um, and we make and programme new writing, theatre, um, comedy and cabaret. So we've got three different spaces. We have a festival-style programme. So we have up to six shows a night or more across three different spaces in the middle of Soho in London. Um, so really, our programme's quite broad. Um, we tend to look at work that is quite experimental in form, uh, innovative, uh, pushing boundaries, unexpected 
connected, all those things. So really for us coming over to here to Pans um, is an opportunity for us to see uh, what's happening in the New Zealand art scene over here. And also what's been interesting for me so far is that there does seem to be a real experimentation with form actually in almost all the pieces I've seen here so far. Um, so I'm looking for pieces to program uh, or potentially collaborate um, on uh, to produce or bring uh, work with artists in the future who we discover here. Yeah, it's interesting actually just listening to both of you. Uh, there's sort of two heads to this monster. Uh, one has to do with Soho Theatre that is looking to program things that might take a greater risk. Richard, I, I've always associated you with more of a commercial uh, viability it, it matters in picking up pieces. So we come to these conferences. Uh, I really am impressed with this conference about uh, Maori people and the, the, specific, the specificity of the work as it relates to the culture that Richard brought up. Uh, are you finding that same thing? And it's pretty amazing, right, how much attention is paid to that here. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really hits you um, when you're here um, is the the integration and those connections. And I, I think, you know, it's it being somewhere you start to really understand their heritage. It's like I always say, if you're thinking of sometimes producing the country that you want to go to, if it's somewhere that interests you, if you're fortunate enough or can afford it in your budget to actually make a, a field trip before you go, you're going to learn an awful lot about the place before you go in there to produce. Just also the, the geographics, because producing in many ways is as much about uh, finding the right place. It's not about how you place a show. And you can completely kill a show by, by taking a show that maybe you like in New Zealand and you completely misplace it because you've put it into the wrong environment somewhere else in, in the marketplace elsewhere in the world. Yeah, that's interesting because we actually had that very conversation after seeing, um, what was it called from heaven? Uh, Contours of Heaven. We had that conversation about, well, if this show is just sort of thrown out to the critics in London or in New York, uh, they, they might... I don't know if they would savage it, but it could really do more harm than good, uh, taking a work out to a broad public too early or in the wrong conditions, right? Well, that's always a really important thing to consider when you see a show in the context of watching something internationally where the country you're in. Because, of course, when you're there, you're immersed in the culture. And, I mean, the three of us have had a fantastic time because we've really been taken care of by Creative New Zealand and PANS. So we've been taken out to beaches, to waterfalls. You know, it sounds like our job's really difficult. But actually, <laughs> what it does is you have an incredible experience around that that gets you very energized and excited. You've got to remember, though, that when the audience somewhere else is watching that, they may not have that same synergy. So sometimes, you know, not, I always say not every show needs to go to go to London or New York. I mean, I, I'm the producing partner with Chicago Shakespeare Theatre in, in, in the US. And of course, as, as you know, down Chicago, without that, you wouldn't have any new writing economy. But actually, you know, I always say to people, sometimes Chicago's the book and New York's the movie. In a sense, you sometimes have to build a show and take its time before it gets somewhere else. And I think, and, I, and tell me if you agree, Charlotte, but I think some of the work that we're all seeing is actually really important about the placement of where it goes next. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with all of that. And I think that Contours of Heaven is a great example because it was a really remarkable piece of work and I really loved uh, the show. But in terms of how translatable it is um, to kind of go to other places, it was, it's another conversation, I think. And, and I think that it's really just about the audience and it's about going, okay, who is my audience? Who is it that I'm making this piece of work for? How does it connect? Um, how do I want it to connect? And how do I want it to um, be received? Received. And I think that that's been really interesting here. And, and like Richard said, kind of we've been having always amazing.
amazing experiences where people here are very much about grounding you in uh, being here in New Zealand on this land what that means like every day there's kind of an in- reintroduction to that and I found that really uh, grounding and interesting and um, and important actually in the way in which then we receive the work that we're being pitched or watching. I really agree with that, and I've had very much that same um, feeling. Uh, I admire so much the social responsibility inside of the work. It doesn't feel preachy to me, but it feels really recognized about what is the, what is happening in the world around New Zealand right now, not just in Maori culture, but it, you know, at large as New Zealanders. What, what are they trying to say? And specifically using performing arts and our, our melu theater as a device to say those things, to get to the truth of the matter using theater is sort of a classic way to go about it. It truly goes back to the Greeks. Yeah, I think it does. I think that's always really interesting about shows because, I mean, when I produce plays, and, and we were talking about, I, yeah, I produce commercially, but I, I actually produce an awful lot in, in the subsidized sector from small scale. So, I mean, I've done shows which are site-specific shows with only 12 people right the way through to, to larger shows on, on, you know, on, on Broadway stages. And actually, the, the gulf of that is, 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 is not that far apart. Producing is a template, so you sort of follow the, the, same, the same model within that. But actually, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly important in the sense of, of work in these collisions that we keep talking about and, and, and also the context of that. I mean, I think it might just be helpful if, if people are listening to talk about very briefly what Contours is about. So you've just got some context of why we're saying what we're saying. And so it's a. So let's actually all three give our opinion of that. So let's describe that show, Contours of Heaven, uh, in our own words. So R- Richard opened it up. So let's start with you, Richard. Describe that show. Okay, so it's a ver- verbatim piece which comes in the Hawke's Bay area of New Zealand, which is a, a slightly more uh, um, lower income area, and it's taken a group of young people's pieces into a, into a verbatim piece told by, told by the most extraordinary young actress with a, a soundscape that evokes the waves and the sound. So in many ways you feel like you're on this sort of quite extraordinary, um, almost sort of like sort of trans, you know, you're almost like a trance-like experience as you're watching it. Uh, and actually you come out of that sort of saying, wow, that was a piece that I really felt I was taking on a journey for. And of course, you connect with the emotional themes of that play, which is why the themes of it and the thematic structure, if you place it right, will work somewhere else because people will see that synergy of young people where they're watching it elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, um, following on from that, I think for me, it's about one um, amazing kind of central performance funneling six stories of uh, six different young women from Hawke's Bay. Um, she was incredible and um, and sort of giving those people a very direct voice, you know, because it was verbatim. Um, and uh, from my understanding, it's kind of from an area of where there's not much talk about hope um, or um, progression, but actually what, what this piece did is it shined a light on the kind of more hopeful aspects that also sit within those young women rather than regurgitating stories about poverty or... Um, disadvantage. Yeah, I really agree with that bit about hope in particular. For me, uh, many of the listeners to this podcast will uh, be familiar with Soho Playhouse's work in Costa Rica at Teatro Jaco. And that's what really connected me to the piece was, uh, as Richard was explaining, the soundscape evoked waves and wind and the elements uh, so clearly, and it drew you in through the elements and evoking the elements to the personal stories. And there was one bit in particular that really hit me. 
because it was so universal, which is that this is a story of young people, young teens to maybe 16 years old uh, in New Zealand, and they have this big weight over their head was one of the imageries of quote unquote making it in life. And the, the perplexity of trying to make it in life without even knowing the definition of that yet. And having that heavy uh, pressure to make something of yourself, to make it in life, uh, in a world where the supreme uh, goal often is just to connect with the elements, to connect with nature. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting confluence of things going on. And you got what you hope from any show, from any performer, which is when you say, play the truth, you sat down watching this performance and you just felt that you believed and, and that she'd lived and she felt every word that was coming at you. And, and you, you can't ask more than, than anything more than that in a performance. I, I really agree with that. That's interesting and it makes a great segue to what I wanted to ask, ask next. Because um, Soho Playhouse, we do annually the Fringe Encore series. And I try to give... Uh, I don't start out necessarily with a theme, but I sort of start watching the work around the world and a theme will often uh, just rise out of, the, out of the, the milieu of it. And this year, I think what is all happening everywhere is what is the truth? So our theme for Soho Playhouse this year is hashtag what is the truth? In a world where we're hearing different truths in politics, different truths in religion, different truths all over the board. Uh, I think theater is a great way with which we can all access truths. And do we all have to have the same truth? Can we live parallel truths? And uh, that's what's interesting about theater pieces that, that this year, I think they're all speaking to some nature of that, or a lot of them are. Uh, Charlotte, does Soho Theatre in London look to theme seasons or at all? And <laughs> no, we don't actually. Um, I think that because we're a sort of new work venue, we like to be really responsive to what's around us. Um, and that can be, I mean, some we do occasionally, we do kind of like we don't we, we theme them but in in not we don't start with the theme then find the work we find the work and then we and then we add the theme if that makes sense so it's about finding the work that's of the moment that feels like it's speaking to today that's relevant that's urgent to be to be shown and then what we tend to do then is kind of navigate you know figure out what it is that it touches on all those pieces of work and then we do we don't call them necessarily big themes of work but we do tend to sort of like yeah bring that together into this season is exploring this thing um so it's kind of doing it in a way around we don't, don't want to shoehorn get into that position where you shoehorn pieces in to a theme because yeah, that can become easily very fake and square uh thing into a round hole sort of business yeah exactly and sometimes some pieces the things that pieces that we try to put on are pieces that need to be seen now that feel like they're of the moment you know so um so that's our priority great how about you richard uh, do you ever look at a season or uh, encompass a period of time where you're thematically motivated? 
Well, I mean, I do quite a lot of work which is about, yeah, which has quite a strong sort of social or, or political inclusion to it. So plays like like Roadkill that I did in in New York about the issue of sex trafficking, or It's a Saying, which play I did in South Africa about the subject of displacement. And I think I wouldn't say so much theme, but I'd say about inf- influence. You know, what what is what is happening at this particular point in the world that feels like it's influential? And I think what you were just saying, Darren, about what is the truth is a, is a really interesting question because I think theatre has always been incredibly influential throughout history with that but we're in a really interesting time now I mean as you probably know in the UK we're going through a seismic change with the the, the, the leaving Europe yeah, the, the Brexit of course which I think currently stands at no deal right it, it does as of today um, that may all change again in 24 <laughs> hours but but the um, but the, the thing that's interesting is when I look at it and I look at two other seismic moments in 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 European or, or history is that there'd been a time when there'd been a lot of plays and writers that would have risen out in a certain way and actually I don't feel and, and, and Charles, tell me if you could, that I've seen a lot of necessarily protest plays about about Europe in the same way I and the National Theatre in the UK did a, a rather lame verbatim piece where they went around and interviewed people and it felt a little bit like it was ticking boxes more than anything else I mean you know when you think right back to the Reagan Empire and you had Genesis writing songs like Land of Confusion we haven't even got um, you know many songs or, or, or stuff coming out so where um, what is the truth seems to have gone much more is actually through Twitter and of course bizarrely it's it's also the place where there's the greatest amount of fake news and obviously the platform for the current president of the United States absolutely so I think in that sense it feels like there is a moment if theatre writers and artists grab it that is actually really important and I think theatre's voice in this and, 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 and we all who, who, who produce shows and, and run theatres, I, I think the role that we have to play at this point is actually probably never more important than it ever has been. Can I add to that? Because I've, I've been thinking that too, and we talked about this a bit the other day, Richard, but um, I also wonder whether it's because people don't know what what is happening with Brexit. I mean, March 29th is meant to be the day, day when we all find out what, what this means. But Just to update our listeners, we're recording this on March 7, uh, 2019 in Auckland. Yeah, so I, I do, part of me wonders slash maybe hopes, I don't know, that that people are waiting to kind of see what this outcome is before they respond. And I do still think there's been a lot to respond to already, don't get me wrong, but I, I just feel so, like we're walking into the unknown at the minute. I agree. I mean, I think that's a really good point because I think in a sense what we don't want to end up, though, is feeling like there's a lot of plays something that have been written to order. Yeah. Oh, it's March the 20th. You know what? I better find my Brexit play. You know, I mean, I mean, probably... I didn't tell you, Richard, we're opening on the 30th. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when you look at it, there's elements that come out. And I think that's important that you don't just use the opportunity of the situation to write a play that you can bend around theme in a sense of what's going on. You have to write it again because we're saying, well, actually, you need to play the truth. And the moment of that play, it has to yeah. come from the right intent of where it's coming from. At the same time, though, I do think this Edinburgh might be full of Brexit plays <laughs> this year. Oh, I, I think you could pretty much bank on that. It's like when we elected our current president two years ago, I went to Edinburgh dressed in armor, ready for every, every all things Trump. Well, it was a bit like, you know, when Osama bin Laden, you know, when, all of the, you know, when he was on, on, on the run and everything, actually, I, I have suspicion he was probably hiding at the Edinburgh Fringe because there were more people doing Osama bin Laden shows I've seen walking around dressed as Osama bin Laden than anywhere else. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's also interesting because this, this year, last year, if people were in Edinburgh, if any of the listeners were there, it became very much a Me Too Fringe. And that dominated an awful lot of work, which meant if your work wasn't on that theme, it sort of kind of got overlooked and it didn't get the same look in. And I think when we're talking about theme, there is the danger. If a journalist pops on something and says it's toxic masculinity that's the theme of this year then everything is trying to conform to a certain theme and and that's that's really dangerous in theater i completely agree with that and that is the flip side of that coin 
the, it, we have a unique opportunity and you would say even responsibility to be culturally aware and culturally present and current and use our art form to have important discussions. But it can easily go down the rails into trying to shove everything into this. Yeah, no, totally. I agree. I was just laughing because I thought you were going to say the social responsibility with me and Darren. And yeah, I so just we just heard this great thing, which I texted to my office immediately. Do you remember exactly how it was put? We wrote it down, both of us. Theatre has a social responsibility to tell the untold stories and to hear the truth. Yeah. And we both wrote it down and I thought you were going to you were going to mention. Yeah, that. I was going to mention that, but I wanted you to I, I couldn't remember <laughs> the exact wording. So I was going to turn it over to you. Uh, yeah, but that was interesting. Also, I noticed that you wrote it down the same second that I wrote it down. So that also told me uh, the commonality about our perspective and our responsibility as producers and presenters and, and theater operators. Um, you know, in America, I, I explain it as the theater is, everybody's yelling over each other in American politics right now. I don't know how, if that's true in, in England as well, but nobody's listening. Everybody's talking, nobody's listening. And that's what gives theater, I think, a very unique forum that the Greeks originally discovered. The rules are you come into a place, they turn down the lights, you, and as audience, normally, you, your job is to sit there and shut up and listen. And, and that is increasingly rare in society at large where that happens. And it also has the advantage sometimes to play the greatest contract on an audience in the sense that, you know, and I, I'm a, a great believer in, in, in musical theatre and the power of musicals because actually in many ways you can bring a mass of people into a room and you can sort of come in thinking you're going to come to a lovely Rodgers and Hammerstein musical and then actually you pull out the card like South Pacific. You learn a lot about a racial politics and what's going on in the world in those points. Whereas if you were trying to do that in a play, people would come with a particular agenda. But actually the moment you put it on the stage in that way, you, you can't underestimate how influential and powerful musicals and forms can be. Because remember, you know, as well as that, we have audiences who are coming to be ultimately entertained. So you have to find the right engagement. So you're pulling an audience in and then actually you can really lay the trump cards of what you want to say. And, and I mean, you know, if you look at the template of Rogers and Hammerstein, it's like old lessons, new tricks. You see it again with Hamilton now. You see it with Jonathan Larson's Rent. That, that passage of those musicals, you have to really look at how important those forms are and, and, and you know, never to underestimate and be very fluid about what what you're producing in the power you have to change through those sort of works as well. Very interesting you say that because it basically happened to me last night. I went in to see, uh, I was conned, not conned, but uh, pleasantly surprised. I went in last night to see this wonderful show and I thought I need an hour of just light, you know, check my brains at the door, hear music. And there was this wonderful group called the Maori Quartet doing a show called Two Worlds. And they uh, open with this beautiful music, and I'm thinking, oh, great. And then I got into four very personal stories and politically charged and racially charged stories of, of love and forgiveness and acceptance. And instead of being uh, turned off by that, I was maybe even further engaged than I would have been if I thought that, were the, that was going to be the show going in. Have, have you ever had anything like that, Charlotte? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, um, at Soho Theatre, we always talk about entertainment factor, entertainment value as part of the conversation. Like, why is the entertainment value? And that's not to say that then a piece of work can't be challenging or shocking or, you know, difficult. But it, but it, there's certainly like a base level of entertainment. Um, and, 
yeah so I have I'm trying to think of shows where I've had that sort of off the top of my head but um but there's but certainly kind of pieces of work that start in one form and then use that form to kind of like you said with musicals to then kind of talk about something really difficult I think we have actually a show in common that we actually have many shows in common ironically without planning it Soho Theatre and Soho Playhouse often program the same kinds of shows and in some cases the same. So yes, Nanette, I was going to talk about, I had that experience watching Hannah do Nanette. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. Yeah, that's a great example. So Nanette had by Hannah Gadsby, um, yeah, started as um, lots of, you know, it's a set up as a stand-up and then kind of talks about her, she, yeah, talks about her experience of being a woman in the, and a comedian and, um, and yeah, it totally kind of floors you by the end. But it certainly starts off, yeah, and it's, it certainly starts off as you think, okay, great. I mean, I sort of knew what it, what it, what it, what it was dealing with before I went in, which I almost wish I didn't because I was waiting for the blow. But I I think that if you didn't certainly you'd be even more surprised yeah i was really stunned by that so that would be a perfect example uh of that those are the kind of shows as well and i suppose that's what you also look for theater or you look at if you're going in a, in any context off broadway fringe or anything you're looking for the sort of show that blindsides you on an idle wednesday night because actually you come in you're kind of knocked by that and actually what it does is a, it creates several things. First, it creates a, a feeling of discovery. You feel you've discovered it, but it feels very personal to you, the discovery you've made it. If you've made that discovery, you feel you own it a little bit. If you feel you own it a little bit, you want to go and share it with someone else. And actually, that ecology of theatre, if you look at it through all, all types of work, it becomes really, really significant because it's actually how you can make a show grow from a theatre like Soho Playhouse and, and really turn it into something that becomes, you know, significant amazing. You know, I mean, I mean, Tracy's plays are a great example of how that, you know... The Tracy Letts the discovery and the journey that you made Darren with finding that and how that journey really has moved him and propelled him at those incremental stages to becoming you know probably one of America's fair to say foremost contemporary American writers. Yeah, that's certainly true. It's also um, that individual discovery is a great way to put it Richard uh, and also there's because but I think there's two discoveries I think there's the individual discovery in the room but then that is immediately shared and the, uh, with those around, sat around, sitting around you. And there's this beautiful community that is often formed in a theater audience by all having discovered together and shared. Did either of you see Daughter at Edinburgh Fringe? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I came, I, I went on my own. And so Daughter was a show, it was at Canada Hub um, in uh, Edinburgh Fringe 2018. And it was a piece of work, it was a one-man show where he um, described, sort of came across this very, very charming, lovely man, um, had a daughter, talked about her, and then kind of gradually through the show sort of described his own story of effectively being afraid of men like him existing because of the, what the kind of men his daughter might encounter in the future. And it turned out he was a real misogynist and uh, a cheat and a liar and a really nasty piece of work. And it sort of ended with him shouting at all the women in the audience. And I watched that show and I felt so angry. And I just thought, I can't believe it. First of all, I hated it. My first thought was, I hate this. I absolutely hate it. And... Um, Everybody in the, but the interesting thing was, was everybody in the room was so riled up by it. And so there was women stood up, women and men actually stood up shouting at him, going, you're this, you're that, like during the show, some people left. I left, I was so angry, I thought, I can't believe I've spent, you know, 12 pounds going to see this man just be horrific. And then, but then it absolutely stayed with me and I could not shake it off. And still now, I still feel like seething, but at the same time... I can feel the impact of that. So I don't, still don't know if I loved or hated it, but it certainly got under my skin in a really, really visceral way. Yeah, 
That's amazing how how the stories can do that. Uh, so you were talking about seeing that in Edinburgh. That that makes another nice uh, segue. Uh, we all have a pretty deep experience in Edinburgh at at the Edinburgh Fringe. So I know Richard puts uh, presents programming there. Soho Theatre, as far as my understanding is, presents there as well as goes there to uh, find shows to bring. I go in, in two capacities as a uh, for the Fringe Encore series that Soho Playhouse produces every year. And like Soho Theatre, I'm also there, if it's not for the Encore series, just to find good work that I want to eventually program. So how do you approach going up to Edinburgh? Let's talk to Richard first as a presenter. You're, you're kind of doing both as well, but let's talk about like how do you put a program together to bring up there? What goes into that? Well, um, I mean, firstly, it, it comes back again to the same question about placement we were talking about earlier. I mean, Edinburgh's really the only fringe that I produce at, um, and I do that because it's actually a wonderful showcase. You know, it, it, people say the world comes to Edinburgh, and it's a, it's a fair statement. So, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting place because you literally can have the Royal Shakespeare Company in the programme playing alongside the first-time emerging company, and they're side-by-side side in, a, in, a, in the same newspaper being reviewed. There's no festival or fringe, or fringe that really, really does that anywhere else. So, in a context of coming up the first thing I suppose is you have to say does this feel the right place for that show because there's many challenges with doing a show in Edinburgh I mean you know the, the, well I've been going to Edinburgh so long and you know in the 80s when I first got they used to have intervals and so you used to watch oh a show gosh. and at the assembly rooms which is one of the big venues they'd come out and they'd have intervals and they'd serve ice creams and now actually we've gone into everything being often one hour slots now that's a challenge because in a sense you know in Edinburgh if you're seeing five shows a day that's great but in, in elsewhere in the UK if it's taken you as long to get to the theatre to watch the show as it is to get home that's not an evening out so those things become really really important within that and then in terms of picking the shows or where, you, where you're going to go then it's about finding the right venue where you place it and where it goes through and how it how it how it works within that and finding the right context because not every play is going to work there so you've got to make it be its best work that it can be and actually sometimes Edinburgh is not the right place for that um, so it's a case of looking I don't know what you think Charlotte with yeah. with Soho and the work that you bring up yeah no absolutely agree with all that I mean I can't imagine intervals that's hilarious but um I <laughs> I quite like it though. Um, uh, yeah, so we present um, between ten and fifteen shows a year, usually at Soho. Uh, cabaret comedy, 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 cabaret, cabaret comedy and theatre. Um, and we definitely have those conversations about all those pieces of. I think the big question for us is: Do you is this the kind of piece of work that you would watch sandwiched in between? another show, another show, because that's the, that's the biggest context of which people are seeing the work, is this might be, especially if it's on in the evening slots, this might be their fifth, sixth show of the day. Um, and Just to explain, so what we're talking about is what Richard mentioned and uh, Charlotte is enforcing is what Edinburgh has really become programming-wise is really you get an hour slot, and, and they're very strict uh, as venues about that. So your show comes in, you have a few minutes to set up, you only have the 60-minute slot. And often it does feel like, am I just seeing the, um, the basic idea here, and is there more show? That, but I think that the urgency of, like, you earn in our busy schedules, to earn that hour slot, you've got, you've got to really grab our attention, right? 
And I think if you've not been to Edinburgh, then, you know, there's, there's over 3,000 shows that play on the Edinburgh Fringe. It's the largest fringe in the world. That's alongside that a big international festival and a book festival. So there's an awful lot of stuff going on in Edinburgh. So that fight for position is, 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 is complex and it's, uh, you know, it's become increasingly challenging. And that's grown since the rise of stand-up comedy in the mid-90s. Before then, I can remember it used to be about 300, 400 shows. And then when the alternative comedy movement came out in the, in the 1990s, largely led by Manchester University, um, that whole shift changed dramatically and actually now it's a, it's a much, much bigger uh, and a much more challenging environment to produce in. I, I've actually had a, um, a changing opinion of that. I would say five or six years ago, I was calling Edinburgh Fringe the fringe that comedy ate. And as a theater artist, I would find only afternoon slots for theater, everything from 7 p.m. onward was comedy. I have shifted gears, uh, honestly, on that over the last couple of years because of this new hybrid kind of show, like Hannah Gadsby and Nanette, uh, even Daniel Sloss, who was recently the Playhouse listeners, will, will know Daniel from being a few times at our theater and, and just his sold-out run recently. You know, the, uh, those and Fleabag currently there. Those are comedy uh, co comedians that have really given shape and spine and arc to shows. And it feels more and more like a theatrical experience than a, than a stand-up comedy experience. Would you, would you agree? I would, but I also think it makes a very interesting shift to where we're going in the comedy pattern. So if you look at the 90s, the emergence was coming out was quite a lot of stand-up comedians. So we had British comedians like Jack D, Peter Kay, um, Ricky Gervais, and those, uh, those artists coming through. They were playing very much standard sets. Now we've gone into this very theatre-led-based work. Daniel Kitson and uh, you know, Kim Noble have led the movement on. Now, what to me is interesting with the bigger comedians, those guys who've gone on to become headliners, who would have used Edinburgh for many years playing maybe a larger venue. Actually, those guys now go and play somewhere like O2, the equivalent of Madison Square Gardens. So actually, Edinburgh is not valuable to them. So they might come and play. I mean, when Ricky Gervais did one show in Edinburgh a few years ago, he played at Edinburgh Castle to 10,000 people on the site of the tattoo. That's all he had to do for Edinburgh. Now, for a lot of shows, you know, if you think about one night at the Playhouse Theatre, which is the largest theatre in Europe, uh, it's about, uh, I think, just over two and a half, three thousand 3,000 seats. Well, two nights there or one night there, you've kind of done the whole Edinburgh run for a lot of other shows. So now Edinburgh has a problem. You have the big stars who they want to attract, but the big stars actually want to come to try out work so it's the start date on a tour it's not just like it's Edinburgh it's so you sell out Edinburgh for the first day in a small venue it looks good on the poster but off you go but suddenly Edinburgh's just become a tour date on part of the circuit and I think with people like Daniel Sloss with Hannah Gadsby it's given an interesting development of a seed that they've had to start thinking about this fusion of theatre and I think you're absolutely right Darren I mean I was very despondent for a time but I look at venues like the Pleasance and now I can see theatre and I can see that fusion happening in the evenings and I, I mean it used to be past seven o'clock you were lucky if you could find a theatre show and that has now changed and I think that's a really great gear shift. But I think also that, that part of that as well is to do with the nature of what theatre is looking like because there is much more of cross art form theatre and certainly at Soho we experience that a lot because of we programme across different art forms that our theatre plays you, they're quite you can't categorise them sometimes like, is it theatre is it comedy is it cabaret is it devised is it and um, or is it all of the above and I think that's kind of indicative of like the Edinburgh Fringe for me feels like there is so and there's a lot of um, self-penned work autobiographical self-performed work you know all these kind of things that I think that there's, there's a real now theatre isn't yeah, the, the nature of what theatre is and what a play is has shifted so is Nanette a play arguably no, 
arguably maybe arguably you know it's not a play play but what does a play mean now you know in the modern context and I think that's what's kind of exciting about the future of where theatre is going and what where where the art form is progressing is that it is starting to take influences from these other platforms yeah I think that it, that's very interesting and very true I, I see that all over the world now the it, not just unique to our cultures all over the world the art forms are, are being it's uh, what's the terminology is a mashup now more more than ever uh, so here we are, it, we were all in Adelaide together at the lar second largest fringe festival in the world. The largest in the Southern Hemisphere is in Adelaide, Australia. So we're all there uh, either judging, scouting, doing various tasks at Adelaide. We've all hauled over, uh, we're, we're a band of merry travelers at this point. We've all hauled over to New Zealand. Um, did, are you, did you find anything between Adelaide and, I don't need you to name names necessarily, but uh, you can if you want, but did you find anything in Adelaide or here that you, that you would be interested in programming? Um, I think that's right, is I'm interested in watching how they develop, and I think that's one of the important things about Fringes, is that they're a seeding ground. So as I say, I mean, one of the things for me with, with testing new writers out is the Fringe is a great place to do that. 30 performances, a very honest audience, they'll soon tell you what they're thinking and how it's working. But I think it's... I, you know, I think the fringes, as, as, as theatre gets more and more expensive, you know, and drama training is prohibitively expensive now for many people. You can come as a bunch of friends, get some money together and put a show on. So actually it's a great place for discovering actors, writers, directors. And so out of Adelaide, to me, the writer who I've been watching very closely is a writer called Christopher York, who wrote a play called uh, Build a Rocket. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see how he develops as a, as a writer. I think he is someone who's, who's interesting. The, the, the pitch we saw earlier today, which was a piece, uh, a Maori piece about... Um, uh, three a, a family um, called um, what's it called bo bo uh, piano boy with a piano uh, piano boy, piano boy. Um, I think is a piece that's interesting the conscious as a, a company out of New Zealand I've been watching a little bit their previous show the white guitar came to London and so again I'm now interested to see where the trajectory of that journey is so you know I think there's lots of acorns as it were to plant to see how they grow and and I think it's going to be interesting to just keep a little eye on where those things are going over the next six to you know 12 to 14 months I had a nice chat myself with Christopher York and was also a really big admirer of Build a Rocket. And uh, he, you'll be happy to know he's let me know he's onto a new piece uh, that he feels like is getting near completion. So I think we'll both be looking out for that. What about you, Charlotte? Yeah, um, I, so I, I saw a show called Superwoman Money Program. Super Money, either, yeah, no, it was Superwoman Money Program. And the, it was Elizabeth, I can't remember her surname, unfortunately, but she was an interesting uh, comedian, sort of theatre maker, doing a sort of autobiographical piece of storytelling slash comedy about... Um, about the gender pay gap in Australia. And um, I thought she had something really interesting about her and I'd sort of be interested to see where that show goes next. Um, and then, yeah, similar to Richard, sort of just keep an eye out for different... We saw quite a lot of circus and we don't traditionally do loads of circus at Soho because we, we're limited in what we can rig. But um, I saw a couple of big interested circus pieces um, that were sort of, yeah, maybe not as kind of not huge circus sets and, and things. So, so Yuck Circus, who I thought were yeah, very cool, very funny um, kind of Australian company there. Yeah, that's interesting. That's another art form. We were talking about the morphing and changing of the art forms and this mashup kind of concept. I really find that to be true with physical theater and circus. 
That's one of the things I quite like about a fringe is the fact also as well is that I might go and see something I wouldn't normally always go and see, but because it's there also. I mean, like like you, I went to see some circus. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't really produce circus at all. I, I tried a first circus with Chicago Shakespeare last year. We did Sir Columbia that came under as part of the Latino Festival. It's a little bit a little bit different, but actually going, I, I, I'm I'm very influenced by cultural influences, and I think fluidity is so important in theatre with what you do. And actually sitting there watching some of that stuff now, I said, yeah, there's something that might fuse into something I'm thinking about maybe down the line and I really enjoyed some of the discoveries that I was I was making and going into those shows and actually I think that's one of the wonderful things that a, a festival can, have, can afford you to do that because it's on your front doorstep and there's a whole and it's also important to mix up a program so you don't just go in and see five you know plays I, I'm interested to know from the, the, the two of you how you then go back to pick something I mean the way I do it in Edinburgh is I see a, a big thicket of shows in the first couple of weeks and I may be seeing five or six shows a day what I do then is in the last week I've held time I've held time clear so if there's a couple of plays that have really stood out for me I then book a, um, a ticket just to see maybe two plays in that day as standalones probably with a bit of gap apart so I'm not like looking for a needle in a haystack saying thank god I found this I kind of sort of come in and go back to it because I think it's often important to sometimes see work a second time and it's a standalone context outside of it just being the great smorgasbord that's in Edinburgh and Edinburgh Fringe but I was just curious how you both then go to, to what you're looking at and how you're picking after that. I mean I'm going to steal that idea because that's a good idea <laughs> this year's Edinburgh um, I think for me it's sort of um, I think we have quite it's really hard to articulate sometimes what we do what kind of work works at Soho but because the audience are sort of um, got a very contemporary audience that are kind of up for a challenge they're not particularly shocked or surprised by anything um, uh, unless it's super radical so I, I think kind of like finding things that sit in that tone are the things that I'm always kind of drawn to and then it's about and then because we have a kind of quite a wide coverage team at, at Soho Theatre so um, it'll be about getting other people in to sort of cross check it in a way and go, and, and usually ideally so if, especially if we're super keen on it going okay try and get somebody from marketing or the press team to go and go okay is this you know does it does it work from that angle does it feel like there's enough here to kind of um, to, to get an audience at Soho because I can see something on artistic merit and think about how we might market it and they can really kind of get behind what the marketing campaign could be um, so really it's about widening those conversations um, I've never kind of I mean I have gone to see some stuff twice if I'm not sure about it but not to, not when I'm sure so that's an interesting idea I think I'll use that and instinct is so important in producing I mean you know there's, there's many skills to it but I mean trusting your instinct and I think that's one thing you've got to be very important about is you see something then you can get lots of other people to come and start yeah. talking about it and I mean I, I produce in a very very like you like the three of us we produce in very instinctive ways and I mean it is that and it's like having a very large dollop of optimism because you know producing is, is we're all born optimists it's what gets us back on the horse again but it has to come from a, a practical and pragmatic sense behind it you can't produce out of blind love but optimism is the fool also that, that creates art and, 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 and ecology to that. I think also it's it's important I always find to separate what I personally enjoy versus what is right for that venue and it's having that honest conversation with myself so going okay I've seen this piece of work I yeah I can't I don't see it you know I don't connect with it but actually thinking no there is an absolute audience for that at Soho Theatre um, so I think I always try and kind of if I've if I've kind of dismissed something in terms of me feeling like it's not to my artistic taste if I I then kind of have a second kind of go at thinking okay but is there an audience for it at Soho and vice versa as well um, yeah. That's really been actually my graduation as a producer and a presenter, uh, learning how to give forum to things that I might even abjectly disagree with. 
that that's been the biggest challenge and that's sort of growing up in producing is learning not just to, to put on um, your confirmation bias but actually challenging yourself and by nature of that challenging your audience to all ideas and all voices get to be heard and theatre is all about exchanges. I mean, the biggest one is between the audience and the actors at the end. But that exchange actually begins from the very moment that first engagement happens, which is why I always say to people after, you know, the actors and the writers, who are the most important people in theatre? Well, they're actually the ushers in the box office. The box office are the people who are connecting with an audience from that front line often, and the ushers are the people who are tearing your ticket and talking to you when you go in. And I'm always amazed how many producers never talk to the ushers at the end of the show, because they're the absolute glue as to what's going on. They're watching it every night. They can tell you what's working and what isn't working, how the audience is responding. But also so it's like, I don't know, if you go to a restaurant and perhaps the food isn't great the first time you go, but actually the service is fantastic, you know, and you're warm and welcome, it gives you the go to go back and have another go. And actually theatre can't sit on its laws and be pretentious. It has to create an experience, but the experience is an exchange. It's about bringing a collision together that's culturally rewarding, but it's the exchange that goes through the whole journey, with the last element of that being the exchange you have in the auditorium with your, with your, with your artists doing the show. That's a really great way to put it. Uh, and so I'm going to wrap it up by challenging everybody listening to this, go experience one of these collisions. Uh, hopefully when you're in London, you'll go see our great friends at Soho Theatre on Dean Street and in Chicago at Chicago Shakes on Navy Pier and all around the world and in London. Look for Richard Jordan Productions. Thanks for listening to the Soho Playhouse podcast. hope that we inspire you to attend a show at our flagship Soho Playhouse in New York City or at our new location in Las Vegas, or for that matter, wherever creative theater lives in your town. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. If you have a question or comment, reach out to us. Our email address is mail at SohoPlayhouse.com. And to find out a lot more about who we are and what we do, go to SohoPlayhouse.com. And remember, as Edward Albee said, people come to Broadway to look. They come off Broadway to listen. Listen.